Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. This show is for veterans, first responders, and their families, and honestly, for anybody who wants to recover from trauma. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. Our vision is of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please help with this mission by following and rating this show on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This simple action will help others find help for PTS injuries. Your help in promoting this podcast could be saving a life. And we're rolling live on all the major platforms. This morning, I'm so happy to get on this show a very special fella. <laughs> I met him about a year and a bit ago at an arm wrestling tournament in, in Red Deer. And um, when I walked up to him, I tell you, the, the guy's hard to miss in a crowd. He's one imposing dude. On the show today is a fella who is a former world and Canadian, well, and a current Canadian champion arm wrestler. Uh, he's been around for a while. Within the arm wrestling world, everybody knows this dude's name. Uh, but the rest of the world doesn't seem to quite realize arm wrestling is a sport yet. <laughs> I still get that all the time. That's a sport? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a pretty big sport, actually. Uh, I'm so happy to have on the show Ryan Espy. Brother, thanks for, so much for being on here today. Hey, thanks for having me. It is very groovy. We have uh, a few things in common. I mean, I am certainly not a champion of any sport, uh, sort in the sport. I'm just a guy that shows up and keeps trying. But um, we are both realtors. How long have you been a realtor? Well, I've just been over, I'm just over six years now. It's uh, So I left, uh, yeah, I left a long career in corrections for uh, a career in real estate. And that was the original idea as well to uh, get you on the show to talk about your corrections days, which we will certainly do. I want to do a little bit of uh, talking about arm wrestling first, though, if that's all right. Sounds good. <laughs> you bet. Um, do you remember when you started in arm wrestling and uh, the, right. and your first time getting into a club? Absolutely. Um, it would be 1997. I started at a local event in my hometown and I pretty much immediately, like I did a qualifying event and then a final event. And then I joined with a winner of the Winnipeg club a very short time after that. So I was fully rolling by, I started in let's say June of 97 and I was in that club by uh, July. What do you think it was about the sport can you remember that far back of what the feelings were um, your first time at the club and what the experience was like, what kept you coming back? Uh, always seeking greatness in a strength sport. So mm. at the time I was torn between a few different things and I have been kind of throughout my entire career, but I went to, um, I was doing strong man at the same time. So at the time I was kind of torn which way I was going to go. And I kind of stayed involved in both of those sports until well into the 2000s and uh, dabbled in some other things too, like powerlifting. But keeping me coming back to arm wrestling was basically the people in it and the coaches that I had and, you know, the camaraderie I experienced the first time I went to a national championship, which was September of 1997, for your information. And I went there and I got my, my, my ass kicked pretty bad, like it was handed <laughs> to me on a silver platter. 
but I, uh, I went from being the man locally and, uh, to go into a bigger stage and getting destroyed. Well, I, and this is gets to the part of the conversation I want to dive into. I think this is exactly why people either love the sport or they try it once and never come back. <laughs> Tell me about how critical it is to be able to find a way to find your humility in order to stay in the sport. Is this something that you've pondered yourself? Yeah, I think a little bit. So if you are one of those people that, you know, you get on a table and you lose. So I've heard, how do you draw more people to the support? And I think it's a, it's a, not just within the sport of arm wrestling, it's any sport. And it's the weird paradigm shift that we've all experienced where everyone gets a trophy at all times, no matter how you do. (laughs) I absolutely hate that. Because if you didn't win, you don't need a trophy for losing. And you should be motivated to go get your trophy. And if not getting your trophy for doing nothing makes you want to quit, then you should quit. If you don't have that competitive drive to actually improve yourself and go on and try to win something, then that is kind of what separates the people that want to be champions and excel from the ones that just want to be okay with living their everyday life and never ascending to greatness in a chosen activity. For me, I I wonder what you think. I've done a lot of philosophy on, on the idea of uh, arm sports and what keeps bringing me back. So the tie in for me is 235 episodes on PTSD recovery. So there's been a lot of contemplation on, on this side (laughs) of, um, what what is the injury what works for getting yourself out of the injury and one of the biggest things if not the biggest thing is community a sense of connection connection with yourself with the person you used to be with connection with others and what does that connection look like well in peer support groups in good properly run peer support groups uh, they are done in such a way that there's no judgment it's accepting. You can just be yourself. Uh, nobody's trying to, to um, everybody knows how to put their ego aside and be there for each other. And the yes. only group of human beings I've ever found in my life, and I've been parts of all kinds of groups and clubs and everything else, the most supportive, uh, interesting, kind people who are able to put their egos aside are arm wrestlers because the only ones that stick are, I mean, of course there's still ego in the sport, but in the club, it's a group of people trying to make each other stronger, not trying to walk around doing a dick measuring contest. It's trying to make each other stronger. That's what I find anyway. Well, there are some clubs that are the other thing, but you know, (laughs) I'm sure there are a lot of people come and go and, and don't tend to go to events and they kind of stick within their own club where they're the big fish in the small pond. Now there is a lot of support, but I think a lot of the thing with arm wrestling is you don't have anyone that's undefeated. No. So you've got that friend that's never lost a match. Well, he's hey. never arm wrestled anywhere outside of his living room. Yeah, that's you know? right. Just because he can beat all of his buddies. doesn't make him good. Yeah. If you get into the sport, your ego needs to be able to handle a loss here and there because it's going to happen no matter who you are. Even Ryan Espy. 
Yeah, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's true. And uh, w- what I keep finding is you get the barroom brawlers that, that come in, and just like you said, they can beat all their buddies. Uh, it's funny, in every family where families always get together when i grew up families got together uh christmas used to be 38 people in the house <laughs> at christmas and uh, unfortunately that's a family tradition that's fallen away but in our family everybody knew who the strongest arm wrestler was <laughs> because people would yeah. would line up and everybody and there would be a pecking order and then everybody would be talking about that well so and so is the strongest well that would be uncle brad you know and he can throw bales and uh <laughs> everybody knew who the strongest puller was but um there's just something about that where uh the bar the bar room pullers and and all this um there's always a hierarchy but when these people show up to the club um they they get what hell of a reality check well i mean that's the thing there's everyone to this day I have people that say to me, oh, boy, you should arm wrestle my buddy, this guy, or my uncle, Tommy. Like, they're pretty good. What they don't realize is, and I'm not I'm not trying to stroke my own ego, but this is a, probably an accurate comparison. If you were to take the average junior high varsity basketball player and stick them against the top NBA team in the league, that is not even close to the gap between an amateur home barroom puller and somebody that trains for this sport professionally. There is nobody like there's a, even the kids I used to work with in corrections used to say, well, what if there's some guy that's just been living in the bush his whole life and he wanders out of the bush and he's going to just take on the world. That person doesn't exist. (laughs) There's no such thing as a person that starts this sport and immediately can beat people that train for the sport. Well, we, we do find the odd unicorn. I mean, uh, what's what's the guy's name? He changed his name once. He uh, even if they're a unicorn, they still need refinement before they can be the top guys. Oh, oh for sure, for sure. <laughs> I mean, uh, e- even a unicorn like um, oh god, what's his name? He beat Larry Wheels soundly. He's going to be facing. Okay, hold on a second now, because Larry Wheels is an amateur arm wrestler at best. Yeah. So Khaled Jashel is who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Khaled Jashel cannot beat a professional arm wrestler. There is no super heavyweight in the top 50 that Khaled Jashel can beat. So all your money's on school, boy. Easy money there. Easy money. <laughs> a real setup match. And that's saying something because schoolboy is not a top super heavyweight professional arm wrestler. But if you go off what you see on the internet, you think he's the man. Well, and this is what I... Uh try to explain to people as well arm wrestling is a superpower if you've got the staying power to show up to the club once or twice a week for two or three years you're going to have a foundation and average joe off the street won't be able to take you like just can't it's not going to happen and uh, but it takes that two or three years of dedication to get there it's a it's a slow road like uh, there's there's no quick ascension in this sport that i've seen it's a slow road because there uh, is the connective tissue. I don't know the physiology of it, but it's a slow yeah. road. Well, some people have more gifts than others. Yeah, for sure. And other people need to build it slowly. Yeah, I'm definitely the slowly build guy. Yeah. <laughs> so all my all my goals are like they're years, not months. Yeah, I've never seen a professional arm wrestler 
uh, starting off that looked like a professional bodybuilder. I've seen some that developed into that later when they leaned out, but I've never seen somebody that comes out of the gym looking like that and was able to transfer that to an arm wrestling table effectively. Larry Wheels is the first one that stuck with it long enough to do that experiment, but he is still not a guy that I would consider even in the top 100 of arm wrestlers in this world. Oh, no, not not by a long shot. I mean, yeah. when uh, Ryan Bowen uh, took him on, and, and Ryan looks like a regular guy. He doesn't look like a giant muscle guy. Like, you meet him and go, okay, yeah. here's a fit fella, but you would never guess how strong his right arm is. And right. Uh, I, I thought he handled Larry fairly, fairly soundly. Oh, yeah, absolutely he did, yeah. So let's uh, turn back the clock a little bit. What year did you get into corrections? 1998. 1998. And uh, what was the driver there? Just a stable stable job and a decent paycheck? or Yeah, that's about it. Plus the nightclub I was working at that uh, I thought I'd stay there for the rest of my life as a young guy. <laughs> Ended up closing down. Yeah. <laughs> a big box store wanted the property that the club was located on and they uh, backed up a dump truck full of money and they got that piece of property that that club was located on. So I found myself needing a job <laughs> and I had started in corrections just before then as a part-time basis. And I kind of threw uh, my whole effort into becoming full-time in this job. It's pretty handy being a fellow of your imposing size. Um, like It's not too often. At the time it was. Yeah, it's kind of handy. Now, in in corrections, I would imagine just the mere gravity of you uh, uh, coming into the room, because you're what, about 6'5"? 6'4". Yeah, 6'4", well over 300, and not jiggly. (laughs) You're a strong dude. And um, just that has got to be a deterrent for most guys. Like, they don't even want to try. Well, you got to remember that some of these kids have seen the most horrific things in the world. The ones, because I worked in youth corrections. Yeah. Um, There is nothing that I can do that is scarier than what most of them have experienced in their lives previous to getting there. They've been hurt. They've been abused. They've been beat up. The only thing that I could do is, like, put an end to them. And they are pretty sure I'm not going to do that. So while it can be handy at times, just being a big guy does not necessarily help without the presence to go with it. There's lots of big guys that started in in corrections and did not do well because it's a personality thing. It's a, a not willingness to see other perspectives. It's all kinds of different things because we're not just turnkey guards. We're actually people that interact with the, the the kids that are incarcerated every day. What I am so pleased to hear is the voice of compassion when it comes to, about, to talking about the inmates. I've heard both. I, I, um, mm-hmm. My regiment was the PPCLI, and the Remand Center in Edmonton is known, known as the 4th Battalion, <laughs> PPCLI, because there's so many of us that, uh, once we got out, end up at the Remand Center on the good end of it. 
<laughs> some some on the other end as well. But um, you hear people referring to the prisoners or clients or whatever the proper terms are in our, now um, as either the scumbags or as w- with compassion of like, these are people. These are people that um, are severely traumatized, which is why they got here. That's how they got yep. here. You know, mm-hmm. and, and this is one of the drums that I, one of the soapboxes that I have st- stood on on the show numerous times is that if you can understand that the homeless, the drug addicted, those that are in jail, they all have a story, a story and a half, you know, uh, and the, the old line that you always hear, well, they made their choices. Not really, because nobody chooses to get traumatized. Nobody chooses to get raped or beaten as a child. Nobody chooses that. The ramifications of that after, I mean, maybe you got through it. That's great. Good for you. But not everybody's the same. As a kid, I was molested, raped as a teenager. And that could have wrecked me. It didn't. But that's me. I cannot put that on somebody else. Everybody is different. Everybody processes trauma differently. So just because I was able to not turn into a criminal doesn't mean somebody else wasn't. And environmental issues, uh, you know, like who's their family? It's, it's not equal. You know, you can't judge others. And what I'm hearing from you is that same kind of sentiment. It's like, hey, these are people. Yeah, so that's the kind of the comment that I go with because everyone says, oh, I bet you never had an easy or a hard time in corrections. Well, you got to remember that these people didn't grow up in, you know, the upper middle class neighborhood where nothing really happened. It's just kind of, you know, dad worked nine to five and mom stayed at home. Like this is not, this is not the world. And on the flip side of that, when I'm talking to these kids that are incarcerated and staff are having like nervous breakdowns and and breaking down in front of them, I'm like, you got to remember guys, they're not familiar with your world either. Like this is not something they've been experienced with in the past. So what you are putting them through as far as uh, a violent outcome or anything like that, this is brand new to their adult brain. And they have never grown up and adapted to this before. So it's kind of a weird give and take that, um, yeah, people just aren't prepared for. And I hadn't thought of that. As You know, that's a really good point, Ryan. As foreign as the, the world of crime and uh, people living on the other side of the tracks, as foreign as that is to, to most people, as impossible it is to to comprehend it, it's equally impossible for these folks to understand a kind, supportive environment where you don't That's have right. to be on guard. It, it's not, very similar to having been in a war zone. Very similar, you know, where you're always on guard, you're always hyper alert, or or being a corrections officer. I mean, maybe different with the kids, but uh, let's say you're working the max or a super max. I mean, yeah. you got to be on your damn toes. The the hypervigilance and the rates of PTSD is significantly higher in the CO community than it is in, in most other first responder kind of environments. Uh, and yet the, the COs, the corrections officers, they, they don't seem to get the same level of acknowledgement, respect, or empathy. They never do. And it's um, it's like you can't take somebody that's 
kind of led a sheltered, inexperienced life and eased them into trauma a little bit at a time, they end up getting a job in corrections because it pays well and it's, you know, something they think they can do. And all of a sudden they see some horrific things and it's right there. It's from zero to maximum speed in a fraction of a second. And they're not built for it. They're not trained for it. They're not uh, equipped to cope with it. And they either handle it and they move on or they kind of break right then and there. Or later on, there's a cumulative effect. Mm -hmm. Because let me tell you something. I have a wife, an ex-wife, and a partner in real estate that all came from corrections. And all three of them have a PTSD diagnosis. I never went and got the testing. But the stuff that I've seen and heard and the vicarious trauma of listening to these kids' stories... And I did work in a maximum unit for a long time as well. Um, it is horrific. It is something that the general public probably could not grasp if I told them this as I'm telling it now. If I told you the stories that that have come out, the things that I've witnessed. Um, when I take my ex-wife, for example, she really struggles and she might actually want to join you on your podcast at some point. Um, cause I still have a relationship with her. We have two kids together sure. and we are friends, but she, um, the thing that finally the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, that put her off of work permanently was very minor. If you look at it by itself, but it's that last thing. It's like when the hourglass has that last grain of sand in it, that's it. You can't handle anymore. It's, it happens and it's done. You, there's no amount of therapy that will allow you to go back to that same role. It's, it's an incredibly difficult thing where you have a group of people that are largely unskilled ascending from almost a high school level to a management level within corrections through the same system that was broken. And now they're leading with no other skills than the fact that they can pass through the chain of command (laughs) effectively. So when you start off in youth corrections, and I'm kind of getting on my own soapbox here, you go through, you know, 10 weeks of training. Well, for me, it was less than a month at the time, but it's 10 weeks of training. When you get a promotion to the second level, which is like a case management level, there is a month long training process. When you go from that level to management, there's no training. You just go into management. So you have this breakdown of as you have more responsibility and leadership, you get less and less preparation to deal with what you face there. And they have uh, their biggest thing they did on my, my facility was if there was a critical incident, you ask them, how are you doing? Do you need critical incident stress debriefing? And if they say no, 10 minutes after the event generally happens, that's it. They said no, but you offered it. There's no follow-up after that. There's no call. There's no, there's no anything. Yeah. And uh, it has to be an SOP. I mean, you can't make it optional, (laughs) you know, uh, it can't be optional. Uh, And there's a lot of good science between uh, about CISD. So when you get on it early, and you process it early, right off the bat, that, that helps to uh, set you up for success. 
it it uh, lessens the instances of PTSD uh, being a thing later on because sometimes the symptoms can take months, sometimes yeah. years. Because one of the things, and I'm sure you have stories where uh, you've seen this yourself, people can block things out. Uh, there was this old episode of Mash where uh, dudes having nightmares about uh, uh, this experience on the bus and and um, uh, the Chinese were coming and uh, the the chicken wouldn't stop clucking. So the mom killed the chicken and it is really bothering the dude. And um, it wasn't a chicken. It was her own baby that she smothered. And uh, But the brain couldn't handle it. And so it flipped. Now I've had this same thing happened to me in a war zone where I saw something and in real time I saw my brain go, nope, <laughs> no freaking way. That is not what, uh, what you know it is. So it flipped it and it's a, it's a burnt pig. That's what it is. It's a pig. That is not a person. That's a pig. And, uh, and my brain flipped it in real time and I went, well, that's handy. Like I recognized that my brain did it and then I forgot that my brain did it. And it was just a pig for 20 years after. That's what it was. Until a friend of mine who was standing there with me reminded me that it wasn't a pig. And then it came back. But the brain is amazing. It can do things like that. And if you can't deal with it, you just don't. So having the CISD, getting on it as an SOP, and just making it making that stuff happen, um, that keeps these things from being buried because uh, burying them doesn't make them go away. They're still there. They're still there and they're creeping and they're crawling and they're, and they're fighting to get out. Um, yeah. you, you have to deal, deal with it um, early. Yeah, and you do have to deal with it early and it never gets dealt with early. And it's not just the actual, you know, when there's a critical incident. When you're sitting there, and we used to run group meetings, and there's a meeting called a life history meeting, and the kid would sit there and tell his story. And he's describing in great detail the abuse he went through. He's describing in great detail the crime he committed, which when I was case managing a group of 10 guys at one point, all 10 of them had killed somebody. All 10 of them. And some in varying degrees, like... You know, the gang violence thing, that's a little bit easier for you to hear because, you know, it's kind of like a, it's almost like you're watching a movie. But it's the ones that don't make sense that you struggle with. Like the one guy, you know, shooting a rifle at his three-year-old sister and then doing the same thing to his adoptive mother and then trying to do it to the dad, but the gun jammed. And that's how he got caught. Or victimizing your own family and all the, and I'm not going to go right into grave detail about this, but there's stories of victimizing elderly family members and the things that happened along the way. And then with that, you know, he killed the dog. And the thing you hold on to is, well, that part doesn't make sense. He killed the dog. And that's the thing that bothers you because you kind of shut out the rest of it. Right. Yeah. But it's uh, it's it's so interesting that they let you go through that kind of stuff, and they just expect you to be okay. And people that like the people I described earlier, like the people that 
the upper middle class folks that have, you know, just kind of joined in this job that they have. And now they're hearing these things. They've never even seen this stuff in horror movies. Yeah. Yeah. I use the word unspeakable to my wife because there's stories I won't tell her because I can't say them. I don't even like thinking about them. Then every now and then I run into one of my buddies that was there too. And they, they tell me one of the stories I'm like, Oh God, <laughs> don't tell that one, you know? Um, but unspeakable is a thing. There are things that are so horrific that, um, they're just beyond the grasp. And you, so do you think there's a way to acclimatize people before they jump into the deep end? In a war zone, I think it, took, it takes um, two, two or three weeks before you either you you get used to it or you got to go home. <laughs> it's one of the two. And um, But do you think there's a better way to acclimatize people? I don't, but I think that the support along the way could be a lot better. And when I say a lot better, I mean that it exists. And is mandatory, not um, not just sending people on their way to go home and now they're with their family and they're processing what happened. Or now they're fire gazing, which means sitting in front of a television in this day and age. Yeah. You know, it's 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 the support that needs to happen in real time and be there mandatory positions for people to unpack what they've experienced on a somewhat regular basis without having to go. And for some people it never happens, but other in the comments, I see regular and consistent mental health checkups. Absolutely. That would go a heck of a long way. And you never get one of those until you're in a critical incident. Yeah. And so it's when it's, when it's too late and it's it's violence. The only thing that constitutes a mental health checkup is violence. But it's not just violence that causes people to suffer and builds an environment where they end up with PTSD. No, you're right. Um, in the DSM, the uh, the mental manual <laughs> for, for a diagnosis, it says that um, for it to be officially PTSD, it has to be encoded in fear. So it has to be a super terrifying, high-octane moment. And I don't agree with that at all. You know, I I, I don't agree with that at all. Uh, The idea, like what I've seen, I've seen people injured from betrayal. I've seen people injured from just understanding horrific events from a a secondary thing, just from hearing the story, right? Because it's different when you hear it from the horse's mouth. There's something about it when you actually meet the person that it makes it more real. And if you are an empathetic person, um, especially the creative types, they can live the story through your story, and they can they can live it themselves. And unfortunately, that's me. So when I hear somebody's story, I live it. And um, so there's all these other factors that can produce injury. Of course, there is. But we're at we're at. We're at half an hour, brother, and you got a boogie. Well, I would love to have a part two with you and tell you the story about the when I left corrections. Well, we will do that, Ryan. Okay. Thirty minutes is a short show for me, but um, either way, we'll we'll leave the audience hanging, and we will come back. We'll, we'll cir- circle back, and we'll have you on again, my friend.
I appreciate that very much. And thanks for having me. Thanks for, for being on. It's been great. And I, I feel like we're just getting warmed up. We are just getting warmed up, but we'll do it again. All right. Thanks, Ryan. You take care. And uh, please stand in line for a moment. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Tremor Recovery Podcast. Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels because sharing is caring.